Hello, my name is Will and this is Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Now, the horror movie is no stranger to unusual marketing gimmicks. The great William Castle was a master of the art, fitting auditoriums with vibrating seats and skeletons that would suddenly appear above the audience. But even by the quirky standards of the legendary Shockmaster himself, The Beast Must Die stands out as a perplexingly bizarre effort. Not only does the film attempt to fuse the horror genre with a parlour room mystery, it also tries to involve the viewer in the film itself through a rather contrived interactive gimmick. And if that wasn't enough to try and get your head round, the filmmakers tack on elements of the blaxploitation genre. To help me work out what in Hades' name is going on, I'm joined by Jim Moon from the Hypnobobs podcast, a man who always sleeps with a revolver loaded with silver bullets. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hello, Will. Hello, folks. I'm a big fan of your show, so would you like to take a moment to tell listeners about the uh, Hypnobobs podcast? Well, yes, it's a... Well, what was one podcast is now kind of a family of four podcasts, possibly with more titles as I subdivide the show into different categories. But uh, I do a weekly show talking about all things weird and wonderful, mainly horror related, but also delving into sci-fi and fantasy and books, comics and TV. And as well as talking about all kinds of good, weird things, I also do readings of a classic genre fiction and uh, have a monthly uh, book review show as well. Excellent. And do you want to just sort of say where uh, people need to go if they want to check that out? Yes, you can find that on iTunes, at my network host, Geek Planet Online, and at my owner subdomain, which is hypnobobs.geekplanetonline.com. Okay, so before we start the main interrogation, I always like to make a gentle inquiry about anything interesting that you've seen recently, so I'm hoping you can uh, enlighten us. Well, yes, I saw a little cracker this week. It's actually one of the few Hammer films I'd not seen before. Seems to be one of those movies that doesn't turn up on TV ever. It's based on a Dennis Wheatley novel called Uncharted Seas, which in turn is ripping off classic weird fiction story by William Hope Hodgson called The Boats of Glen Carrick. And the movie's called The Lost Continent, and it's about a tramp steamer that is uh, leaving South America under something of a cloud, and most of the people on there are ne'er-do-wells who are fleeing for one reason or another. <laughs> They run into a storm and end up in the Sargasso Sea. And uh, the first half, it plays out kind of like a cross between a disaster movie and a noir. It has all that kind of feeling, all the characters' stories are there, you're interweaving, and they've, they've all got dark deeds and nefarious secrets they're keeping from each other. But um, once you get into the Sargasso Sea, then they're getting attacked by killer seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then giant sea monsters with tentacles and giant crabs. And then they are raided by men in skins wearing homemade animal skin hot air balloons who are from a landlocked ship of conquistadors who've been stranded in this weed monster hellhole <laughs> since the 16th century and are still living under a mad, crazy sort of theocratic regime on this ship. And they, anyone who's a heretic is thrown to the weed monsters. It's absolutely fabulous. I've no, I can't believe it's, it's really unknown. How does uh, killer seaweed work? It doesn't sound terribly promising, but uh, from your description, it sounds as if it works a treat. Well, you can hear it coming by this weird kind of uh, electronic sort of uh, whistling. And then it's literally, it will just flap through portholes and it has like suckers on it, it'll drain your blood. <laughs> that, well, that does sound really good. So uh, I'm definitely going to stick that on my to watch list. And, it is uh, it is actually on YouTube on a hooky copy. 
Ooh, uh, okay. But it probably shouldn't be. I mean, I got a DVD because it actually, um, so it was a hammer film and it's in my collection. But if you want to give it a look, it is on YouTube. And it has a fantastic easy listening theme tune at the start as well by the Peddlers. <laughs> I know you're a big fan of that sort of genre of music. So, uh, yeah, it's ticking a lot of boxes for you, I can see. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, thanks, Jim. I think it's time to get stuck into The Beast Must Die. So let's hear an impossibly deep-voiced man outline the plot. <laughs> when the moon is full, the beast must die. One of you is a werewolf. One of these eight people will turn into a werewolf. Can you guess who it is when we stop the film for the werewolf break? See it. Solve it. But don't tell. The Beast Must Die. Rated PG. So The Beast Must Die came out in 1974. The story sees wealthy businessman and expert hunter Tom Newcliffe invite an eclectic group of well-to-do friends to his country mansion. They're expecting a weekend of convivial hospitality, but Newcliffe has other ideas. As his guests gather for a pre-dinner drink, our eccentric host drops a bombshell. One of them, he declares, is a werewolf. And no one will be allowed to leave until he's discovered who it is. The film stars Calvin Lockhart as the werewolf hunter, and the eight suspects include Horace Stallwarts, Peter Cushing and Charles Gray, a very young-looking Michael Gambon, and Anton Diffring, who, if you don't know the name, you'll know the face, because he played a German officer in just about every World War II movie ever made. Jim, I know you've seen a lot of werewolf movies. What did you make of The Beast Must Die? Well, it's a movie, I mean, I first saw it many, many years ago in um, the 80s when BBC Two in Britain, over the summer holidays, they'd run a late night horror double bill. And normally they'd have a black and white oldie from the 30s and 40s and then um, something in colour from the 60s and 70s. And so I think I was actually on holiday and... (laughs) the time in a caravan watched it on an old crackly portable and um you know when you're 12 13 however old there was it's kind of this is just amazing stuff um because <laughs> well it was really sort of chiming with kind of a lot of the, the tv shows um i'd grew up with all kind of you know the action itc serials like the the persuaders the baron and the 80s fair as well like the professionals it has that it's that sort of it's got a mix of kind of horror and that kind of um fun action to it and uh, I have to say, I hadn't a clue who the werewolf was, but I thought the werewolf break was just really, really fun. <laughs> who do you think it is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'm in the same sort of camp as you, because this film is, uh, as I'm sure we'll sort of perhaps talk about a bit later, it's got some flaws to it. But I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed this film, you know, despite all the flaws. And I think it's one of those movies where you just have to sort of suspend your disbelief and just kind of enjoy the outlandish premise <laughs> and just enjoy some of the acting, which is, uh, I wouldn't necessarily good, is, is some of it is theatrically over, over the toply <laughs> enjoyable. Some of it is just plain bad, but always in an entertaining way. So, you know, I found, I found The Beast Must Die a thoroughly entertaining watch well this is i mean i've seen it a few times now and i actually enjoy it more every time i see it i mean one thing amicus they weren't a big budget outfit at all they were dirt cheap actually in most cases but they always used to get great casts of actors 
And the actors always, when you're watching an amicus, you can tell they're having so much fun. I mean, partly it was because they got hired on a day rate, which meant they got paid by the day rather than a flat fee. <laughs> which meant doing an amicus was a good little earner. Do you want to just say a little bit about who sort of amicus were for people who are listening who might not be familiar with them? Obviously in the 60s you had um, Hammer Studios, who were the kings of not just British horror, but horror in the world, and uh, they did colour versions of Dracula, Frankenstein, and pretty much ruled the roost. Now, um, in the early days, Hammer had sort of kind of got the idea to do a version of Frankenstein from a chap called Milton Subotsky, who submitted a script retelling the Frankenstein story, which they ultimately rejected. And Subotsky, in the end, teamed up with, he was an American gentleman living in England, and he teamed up with another friend of his, another American, Max J. Rosenberg, and they formed Amicus Pictures. And at first they did a couple of uh, sort of teen movies. The first Amicus movie was called It's Trad, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Then they got the license to adapt Doctor Who, and they did the two Doctor Who Peter Cushing movies. And then they branched out. Milton Sabotsky was a huge fan of the classic Eagling film The Dead of Night, and Amicus started making a string of these um, portmanteau horror movies, which they're now probably best remembered for. The thing is, there's always this kind of myth that kind of Hammer did the gothic horror, and Amicus did sort of contemporary horror and did portmanteau pictures. But in truth, both studios actually overlapped a lot because Hammer did contemporary thrillers and contemporary horrors. And Amicus did lots of full-length features as well. Um, they did one of the first big killer bee pictures, kind of from the Four Bears of the Swarm, a movie called The Deadly Bees. And they also did some very odd sort of experimental movies as well over the years. But they always used to do these occasionally, these full-length horrors. And by the time you get to 74, Amicus was sort of feeling, we really want to get out of the horror market because horror post-Exorcist was getting increasingly sort of graphic. And Milton Sabotsky was very kind of old-school chills. And a lot of horror films post, say, in the early 70s, you're getting Last House of the Less, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're getting lots of boobs and blood thrown in. Hammer tried to go with that and they failed. Amicus took a different tack and went toward more doing adventure films. And around the same time they're doing Beast Must Die, which is this genre hybrid, they're also doing the famous Doug McClure rubber monster pictures at the Earth's core and Land When Time Forgotten, really cleaning up with it. So, so this movie is kind of, it's the last stages of Amicus where they're sort of, they're looking to do different things other than the usual horror. And so you've got this kind of drawing room mystery Black exploitation, werewolf who done it. Well, let's uh, talk about one of the marketing gimmicks that they have introduced into this film. So uh, we've mentioned it already. It's this thing called the werewolf break, which was, and it's probably what this film is most famous for. And it was a very strange attempt at making watching this film an interactive experience. Now, this may take a, a little bit of explaining, so bear with me. So the <laughs> film opens with a narrator inviting the viewer to solve the mystery of who the werewolf is and announcing that we'll be given a chance to solve it during this aforementioned werewolf break. What this means is that around three quarters of the way through, the film completely stops. The narrator <laughs> returns and asks us if we've worked out who the werewolf is a big clock then appears on (laughs) on the screen and we're given 30 seconds to give our answer jim did the werewolf break enrich the experience of watching this film for you i I think it's a a marvelous bit of old tat (laughs) (laughs) um it's quite curious because i mean as you said this gimmick was ripped off a william castle one whose 1961 film homicidal had a fright break where before you got to the end 
you, the film stopped and you've got a narrator coming on saying, if you're too chicken, you can leave now and get a full refund. And Amicus didn't do anything like this in any of the other movies. <laughs> I know generally the portmanteaus would finish with the devilish host turning to the camera and going, it could be you next, watch out. <laughs> uh, but they'd never gone for these castle-style gimmicks, and Sabotsky apparently insisted on it. I don't know what he was thinking, but <laughs> it's one of those things It's made the film, uh, it gives the film a unique selling point. And, I mean, I'd love to have seen it in the cinema back in the day, and I'd love to imagine people all shouting out, it's foot, it's foot, <laughs> no, it's Charles Gray, he's not dead, it's a ruse. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what my experience of watching this film was. I was just thinking, what on earth would this have been like watching it in a cinema? You know, were you supposed to turn to the person sitting next to you that you perhaps didn't know at all and start chatting to them about who might or might not be the werewolf? Bizarre, to say the least. <laughs> I know around this time, um, Amicus had, had got a, had done a deal with American International Pictures who um, produced a lot of the Roger Corman flicks in the 60s and did all kinds of exploitation features. So I think the werewolf bread gimmick was maybe something that they had an eye on that played really well in the drive-ins, which is um, kind of the primary market AIP used to make movies for. Mm. And, you know, I think there's always sort of been kind of a culture of people heckling um, cheesy films. <laughs> and I think it was kind of just tapping into that. I don't think you could do a gimmick like this today because I think the, uh, the werewolf break in this film very closely resembles uh, countdown for <laughs> and i think the cultural you know those cult- cultural resonances would be too strong the filmmakers would just wouldn't be a possibly be able to sort of get away with it without people just sort of laughing at the film and just going what's this sort of bizarre werewolf countdown break i mean for me i've, I've got a confession to make i don't know what it is I, i've got a a stupidly good memory, but for some reason, I never remember who the werewolf is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, every time I watch it, I've forgotten. I remember the twist that his wife gets bitten, spoilers, but uh, I never remember who the original werewolf is. <laughs> and I don't know why, it just it's one of those, it's like some mental blinds, but it just won't stick. And so every time it gets to the werewolf brace, I'm thinking, Christ, now who is it? I should know this. <laughs> Well, I, I hope you, uh, I, I hope you never remember, uh, who it is, because I think that would only, that would only sort of get in the way of your enjoyment of the film. Well, well watching it, uh, again last night for this podcast, I sort of go, right, I'm going to pay attention actually, you know, is it actually solvable? Can you actually get the clues and figure it out? And I think actually you can. Um, there's some misdirections, but it's, I think it's just balanced well enough of, uh, it doesn't cheat on you. There's nothing kind of that actually, oh, it couldn't be him. And it, I mean, cause I've watched a lot of her uh, films with stupid twist endings <laughs> that very often they've cheated outrageously <laughs> and, you know, counting you forgetting something they've forgotten about. But I think this one you probably could figure out, you probably could figure out, you've got a, a, a fighting chance just by where people, characters are when the murders happen and who isn't there and who's the one who's always lagging, appears last suspiciously. Now the werewolf break isn't the only marketing gimmickry employed by this film. The movie was originally conceived as a horror mystery genre piece but at the last minute the producers decided to try and cash in on the booming black exploitation film genre. Jim are you happy to sort of elaborate on uh, how that works in this film? Well this is it originally, um, partly against this deal with uh, AIP they had AIP's kind of star they were nurturing as the next horror icon, a chap called Robert Quarry, who appeared in a couple of vampire movies as the Count Yorgar, 
and a couple of other AIP picks as well. He was going to be um, Tom Newcliffe, the big game hunter. Quarry, though, was a bit of an arse to work with by all accounts. <laughs> um, I mean, kind of, a, he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder anyway, because he knew full well he was only sort of getting his bag to the cherry because AIP wouldn't pay for Vincent Price anymore. And but you know, the, this is you know, the era of Shaft and you know all those great black exploitation movies and. Uh, Hammer had, uh, the year before, had done Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, where they attempted to mix gothic horror with martial arts and teamed up with the Hong Kong filmmakers, the Shaw Brothers, to produce this demented film. <laughs> about kung fu vampires amicus always had that kind of you know a very contemporary edge and i think you know they thought well actually you know it's cast calvin lockhart this you know puts a new spin on the film and i think actually it makes the film very very interesting because they don't play him like black exploitation he ain't talking jive and um <laughs> there's no kind of offensive stereotypes which you know if you watch actually a lot of black exploitation now even that made by black filmmakers, it can be a bit uncomfortable to watch with our modern sensibilities. Whereas in The Beast Must Guy, you've got this black guy who's a multimillionaire, nobody bats an eyelid. It's never mentioned. <laughs> it's not an issue. And he's incredibly suave and smooth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of people are currently talking about, oh, could Idr Idris Elba be a good black Bond? Forget that. Go back to 1975, ask <laughs> Calvin Lockhart, he'd be brilliant as Bond. Well, I think that is the strangest thing about this movie, in the sense that it is trying to sort of cash in on the black exploitation film genre, but then doesn't actually sort of employ any of the tropes of that particular genre. So, as you say, Calvin Lockhart's character, he's an absolute, in terms of the the presentation of his character and, and in terms of Calvin Lockhart's acting, you know, he's a million miles away from, you know, actors like Richard Roundtree or Jim Brown or Fred Williamson, who are big names in the black exploitation film genre. And sort of Lockhart's, as you sort of said, he's, he comes across as, as very suave. He's got this kind of quasi sort of regal air to his uh, mm -hmm. acting. And bar the fact that you really have sort of he, he and him and his wife um, in these kind of these lead roles in this film, that's pretty much as much as far down the sort of black exploitation sort of route as they go. Although, having said that, they do... The soundtrack of this film does seem to be a half-hearted attempt at trying to employ some of the sort of the stylings of the, of the black exploitation genre. It's a bit sort of like the theme from Shaft reimagined as uh, <laughs> elevator music. Well, this is it, a lot of it is kind of the, sort of the classic lush strings you, you associate with um, British horror and horror of that period but then when you get the action sequences the wow wow our pedals come out it's absolutely fabulous I think on the actual uh, genre thing I mean a lot of people go it's a crazy mashup of this that and the other but um, actually this is pretty much cookie cutter going back to a very old subgenre called the old dark house the old dark house pictures were really popular in the um, 30s and 40s. And what they were was there was um, an isolated house. People are gathered there for various reasons. People die one by one. There's dark secrets. There's often a killer or a monster on the loose. It's a mystery to who the killer is. And they're kind of, they're always a bit tongue in cheek. They have some good scares, some thrills, some mystery, a bit of romance. And they were kind of a bit of a grab bag of everything. And uh, say there were dozens of them produced, the most famous one being The Old Dark House by James Whale, which gives the subgenre its uh, title. But they were making them well before that, and they come from actually stage plays, which were kind of these sort of 
spoofs of mystery melodramas. And Beast Must Die is an old Dark House movie to a T. And um, this kind of genre mashing up was occurring in the 30s in the same way. Killer animals were popular in uh, old Dark House movies. And there's actually a whole subgenre of the subgenre featuring killer gorillas, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Well, I, I, would, I would agree with you because, you know, we've talked about this film in the sense that it's a horror movie and a black exploitation movie. But really, those elements are really are, are a bit tacked on. And I would agree with you that at, at its essence, at its core, this film really is a, a sort of an old dark house movie. And those other sort of genres are really just a little bit of kind of window dressing mm. round, round the uh, round the sides. It's, you know, enjoyable additions that they are. They're not sort of part of the real DNA of uh, this film. Well, where it is groundbreaking it's a very interesting take on the werewolf movie because normally werewolf movies going back to the one that really started werewolf movies, werewolf of london is chap gets bitten by a werewolf oh dear oh, i've turned into wolf and eaten somebody i feel terrible about it somebody stop me whereas this is quite interesting as that it doesn't go down that route where which nearly all other werewolf movies up to this point had <laughs> I'm not as well versed in uh, werewolf lore as your uh, as yourself, so this is fairly unique. I'd put it say, as fairly unique. I know there was mentions in one of the later Universals that talked of lycanthropy and werewolfism as a, a physical disease, but I think this is a one of the first movies that really sort of develops that idea. And one now that's very much in the pop culture, you know, completely, the idea that, you know, werewolfism is a virus that's passed by blood and saliva. And I think kind of it really does start here. If this isn't the first, it's certainly the one that puts that idea firmly on the map. And being such a weird movie, it's lodged in everybody's mind and everybody is, uh, you know, ran with it ever since. And in particular, the idea that, you know, it's a physical allergic reaction werewolves have to silver and things like that. So it's, it's, it's a groundbreaker in its own mad way. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the actors in this film. Uh, in the role of the werewolf hunter, we have Calvin Lockhart, who we know wasn't the first choice for this film. What did you make of his performance here? He has a tendency just just to be on the verge of taking a chunk out of the scenery. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always just rained back in. <laughs> he, he, and, does a, uh, he has a wonderful habit of whenever he says something sort of mildly controversial of sort of looking into the middle distance to just sort of give that uh, give his statement a little bit of an extra theatrical air absolutely i mean i mean he does have he has a norm he has enormous presence and i know ladies watching him get distracted by his very tight trousers um <laughs> but for me it was just you know the kind of the ice cold sort of ruthlessness and sort of that kind of rude charm he has you can see why people like him, even though he's likely to say something appalling to your face and just go, so? <laughs> <laughs> well, he is hosting possibly the worst or maddest sort of weekend retreat I've ever possibly <laughs> seen in my entire life. Because he's locked up all of these, I'm assuming they're friends of his, he's locked them all up in his house and is essentially sort of accusing, well, one of them of being a, a you know, a hairy human-hound hybrid. <laughs> and they all just sort of very politely sort of sit around and let him really roll with uh, roll with this kind of game that he's playing. I mean, it's just thoroughly bizarre in, in the extreme. Well, it takes these, these two deaths before someone says, shouldn't we call the police? <laughs> 
<laughs> and he's like, no, it's the last night of the full moon. This is my last chance to hunt the beast. Shut up. I mean, his guests are incredibly forgiving in this in this film. I mean, he, demo- he he puts them through various tests to sort of see if they're a werewolf or not. And very few of them sort of say, look, I'm just not playing along with any of this. They all they all sort of they're all very all very amenable to uh, to this uh, situation. It's uh, as I say, it's just thoroughly thoroughly bizarre. I suppose it's uh, just the you know the cinematic uh, British upper classes at the time. Time, you know, if they weren't at his house the next weekend, they'd be at some country house and guests would be dying, and they'd all be accused of murdering each other. So par for the course, I suppose. <laughs> and and probably uh, too polite, really, to make more of a fuss. I imagine that probably uh, played into uh, into it as well. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. But we've also got some other familiar faces in this in this cast. We've got Peter Cushing and Charles Gray uh, amongst the cast here. I know you're a big uh, Peter Cushing fan. What did you make of his? turn here. I don't think it's his finest role, but mainly I kept getting distracted by his, his slightly frizzy wig. <laughs> um, but he, he does a good kind of uh, Teutonic accent as his sort of... Because his role is he's like the the mad doctor, essentially, who's been researching werewolfism for years, and no one's ever believed him until he's met uh, Tom Newcliffe. But you always have that wonderful sense with him, kind of, this man is probably really barking mad, but he's, he's functioningly insane because of his obsession, but don't cross him. And there's a wonderful scene near the end where <laughs> well, Calvin Lockhart demands all his guests um, put a silver bullet in their mouth to see who the werewolf is. He gives them one each, hygienic, but there's a wonderful scene where just Cushing just looks at him, looks at the bullet, and then Craig Carson goes, gets his hanky out and cleans it before he puts it in his mouth. <laughs> and then when he takes it out, he cleans it again. Like, you can have that back now. <laughs> I actually noticed that, that moment as well, and I just thought that that was a beautiful uh, moment of acting by Peter Cushing. As you said, he... He goes for a German accent in the, in this film, which does mean that he, throughout the film, is talking what seems to be about wee wolves, not about <laughs> uh, not how you or I might uh, pronounce them, which uh, is rather odd. Though he never really seems a suspect in this film. I don't know, you know, maybe I was missing a dimension to it, but he he seems to really sort of escape the finger of suspicion. I don't know what you felt. I th- he does largely because he's kind of well, kind of the Van Helsing analog, really. But at the same time, it's a I did think this time, when he, he mentions, ah, well, you could have a coating on your palm so you can handle the silver and not give yourself away. So he's like, hang on, is it him? Has he done that to his palm? <laughs> it's, it's, it's elaborate double bluff. <laughs> but uh, he, he kind of, he's just sort of faintly sinister in the background. But normally, he's uh, the way the action pans out, he is always in the clear. It couldn't have been him. We also have the brilliant uh, Charles Gray in this film, who people may know him probably best from. Uh, he played Blofeld in You Only Live Twice, mm-hmm. and you know he also sort of cropped up in a lot of uh, horror movies. And uh, you know, one of my sort of favourite Hammers, uh, The Devil Rides Out. He's got a great role in that as uh, the evil Makata. And I, I wanted a bit more from Charles Gray in this film. He doesn't. He doesn't have a great deal to do. I always enjoy watching him, and I felt he's a bit underemployed in this. They probably couldn't afford another day for him, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I mean, he's he's very good in this because he plays kind of one of those characters that's very familiar from Agatha Christie's and the like. This kind of, you know, really actually rather unpleasant middle-aged rich white man <laughs> who, <laughs> who, you know, no matter what he's doing, you know, he's going to be grousing and, and, <laughs> and bitching about it. He's rather spectacularly and rather wonderfully unpleasant to everybody in this. And uh, I like yourself, it's kind of like when, when he dies, you're like, oh, 
could have had him a bit, 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 bit longer because he is such, he is such fun and he brings such a dynamic to, uh, to the dinner party from hell. We also have uh, Anton Differing in this film, who, as I mentioned in my introduction, is somebody whose face, once you see it, I think will be uh, very familiar. And he probably is possibly my favourite character in this film, because just to give a bit of background, Calvin Lockhart's character has uh, imprisoned uh, all of his guests in his uh, his mansion, and he's rigged it up with a very elaborate sort of CCTV system with microphones everywhere and TV cameras. And Anton Differing is kind of sat in this control room looking for the signs of uh, the werewolf. But at various points in the film, we sort of cut back to Anton Differing sort of sat in this sort of control room. And he seems to be possibly of all the people there having the most fun because he's sort of having a drink, he's having a little snack <laughs> whilst he watches this, watches uh, Tom Newcliffe drop bombshell after bombshell, you know, accuse people <laughs> of being werewolves and accusing them of being sort of ne'er-do-wells in different aspects of, of their lives. And he see- he seems to be having a whale of a time in that control room. I, I particularly enjoyed his sort of insouciant detachment from <laughs> proceedings. He's quite wonderful. He's a fascinating character. So he is a, he's the hunt control. And he does, and has a kind of just this very dry humour that creeps through, particularly when he's uh, instructing uh, Lockhart as he's out hunting the werewolves. But they have a wonderful kind of chemistry in a relationship of the, you know, Pavel, his character, makes no secret of the fact that he thinks this guy is wasting his time and <laughs> money and he's off his rocker. But he pays well enough, so what the hell? The drinks are good, the chair is comfy, he has enough cigars, <laughs> and he'll just go along with it. So I wanted to ask you what you thought of the werewolf in this movie. As this film was made long before CGI, the filmmakers, I probably guess, had two choices. Dress someone up in a furry suit, or use an animal that could double as a werewolf. What did you make of the choice they made here? You're onto a loser, to be honest, with this, because even if you get a real wolf, unfortunately, real wolves do look rather cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> and in this, they've got a, some kind of large, large dog, which they've um, added extra fur to to make it look wilder. Uh, in fairness, I was watching it, I was keep trying to keep a tally of what worked and what didn't. And I came to the conclusion that half the time they shoot it well enough, so you've got this big furry black shape just bounding through dimly lit woods or leaping towards the camera. And that works fairly well. However, in other shots, the camera's on it a little too long. <laughs> and you're going, that's a dog in a coat. <laughs> so it's about 50-50 success rate, I think. It's very difficult to, to do a good werewolf. I mean, even with CGI... I mean, yes, you can make any werewolf you can imagine, but by God, have we seen some really crudgy ones over the years. <laughs> it's like, it seems very hard for people to get what a werewolf looks like right and to make it scary in a way that doesn't look ridiculous. So kind of on par for par, in fairness, I mean, yes, it's a dog in a coat in some shots, very obviously, but at the same time, it still looks more realistic than the CGI wolves in Twilight that where they couldn't even get, keep the scale of them right. Well, this film does have one of the best bits of trivia I think I've uh, I've ever read, which was uh, which reads: for budgetary reasons, a German Shepherd was used instead of a werewolf, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that probably tells you about as much as you need to know about the uh, the the werewolf in this film. I, you know, having said that, I would actually agree with you. I think the way in which this is filmed, a lot of it actually 
kind of works really well. There's a number of scenes where Newcliff's hunter character is is trying to shoot the werewolf and we see it sort of evading the bullets and running through scenes and it's only glimpse it fleetingly and that pretty much works and there are you know when we see it in long shot again it kind of works and uh, I, would, I would agree with you it's in the the closer up shots where there's mm. a, a few shots of where human characters kind of wrestling the werewolf and i think those are possibly the more unconvincing moments but you know, despite the fact that this is clearly a dog, as you say, with a bit of extra hair attached to it, I think the filmmakers actually sort of do a sort of good job of making it seem sort of like a dynamic threat in this movie. There's a couple of really good shots where it actually just leaps literally towards the camera. It looks, it does give you a kind of, whoa, I'm glad that wasn't in 3D. Where Pavel gets it, it comes through the, the skylight against this, you know, beautiful deep blue sky. It's almost like a silhouette. It does look really good. I think the, the big misstep is where they do have it fight a dog. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, it's a bit hard to maintain the illusion that it's somehow different to the dog that it's fighting in, in that it, it particular is, scene. It is just a bit. I mean, it doesn't quite sync to the worst dog stunt work I've seen, which was um, a low-budget adaptation of James Herbert's The Rats, where to make the giant rats, they put um, small dogs in rat costumes, and in several scenes you can hear the rats barking. <laughs> um, but it, in the dogfight, it was just kind of... It would have helped if they redubbed some of the sounds so it was a bit less barky. <laughs> <laughs> now normally we're a spoilerific podcast but on this occasion i feel i'd be doing the beast must die disservice if we were to sort of give away the exact ending of this film so without revealing who the werewolf is um, mind you jim from what you said you've probably forgotten already who the <laughs> werewolf is what did you make of the film's ending do you think people could really solve this mystery I think I think it is solvable. I think if you watch very carefully, although there's some misdirects that might throw you off, I think it's a good challenge for for mystery buffs to have a, have a crack at this one. Actually, if as for the end, actually over ending overall, another thing I always forget is how absolutely downbeat it is. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, that really took me by surprise, actually, and I got sort of you know I was in, I was enjoying this film and. It's got a slight air of silliness to it, but yeah, so I think uh, having sort of watched it, then that, as you say, downbeat ending um, really sort of took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting it, and I think for that reason it had a had a bit more impact than it might have otherwise. Well, this is it. I mean, um, with kind of the, this sort of uh, era of uh, 60s and 70s horror, they... Um... If you watch movies now, one of the great things about them is they don't mess around with the endings. It is, right, the monster's dead, the house is in flames, the surviving couple embrace, roll credits, the end, done, get out. There's none, <laughs> there's none of this, ooh, it's nearly finished, no, it's not, ooh, it's nearly finished, no, it's not. No long epilogue, it's just like, bang, done, go. Join <laughs> uh, but this, it really, it takes that and makes it, like, really brutal. <laughs> it is just kind of like... Whoa, that was bleak. And the more I think about it, actually, it is, it is the right ending as well. It, it completes character's story in, in a kind of satisfying, morally just way, shall we say. As you say, it completes the sort of the arc of these characters. And it's a, it's a bit hard to sort of talk about it in detail because uh, obviously I don't want to give uh, we don't want to give things away here. But uh, well, I think all I can really say at this moment is to really just sort of echo what you say, that it does complete the sort of the arcs of various characters in a very satisfying way well this is it because in all respects it kind of it fits into the typical hammer amicus 60s 70s horror and you expect 
good to triumph over evil. But the way it ends, it actually fits in with kind of the new wave of 70s horror of your last house on the left, your Texas Chainsaw Massacre, your Night of the Living Dead, where the ending is kind of, everything sucks. <laughs> it's downbeat. There is no hope in the world. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to pick over the bones of the exploding helicopter action. He brings the popcorn. She brings the roses. <sighs> Subject Cinema, a tasty new film topic each week with a side order of film reviews. Yum. T.C. Kirkham. But I'm Jim. Kim Brown. What? Over half a million listeners, and you could be the next one. Subjectcinema.com Real movies for real people. Welcome back, and now we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action in The Beast Must Die. We're given an early whiff of possible chopper-fireable entertainment when we learn that Newcliffe plans to use a helicopter as part of his hunt for the werewolf. After tracking the... Uh, human-hound hybrid from the air, the pilot lands so that Newcliffe can continue the chase on foot. The wary werewolf evades his hunter and doubles back to the helicopter and attacks the pilot. Our hero rides on the scene and tries to shoot the lupine beast, but succeeds only in hitting the helicopter, which promptly explodes into flame. Jim, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action here? I was absolutely knocked out by it. I mean, uh, when you invited him on this show, I thought, does it have an exploding helicopter? That was, that was, that's a bit expensive for the likes of Amicus. <laughs> but actually, there's a lot of helicopter action in this. And uh, and I was, you know, I was really surprised it wasn't actually a stock footage helicopter blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also it's just a very rare to see, because uh, normally helicopters explode in the air, and to, to see one actually blown up by machine gun fire with silver bullets, no less, that's got to be a first. <laughs> Absolutely. That helicopter destroyed by silver bullets is uh, completely a cinematic first. It's a very ostentatious touch by Tom Newcliffe's character there to uh, blow up a <laughs> blow up a helicopter. I mean, obviously, it begs the question as to whether we should be seeing other films with people using precious metal bullets to destroy helicopters <laughs> in them. There's certainly a gap in the market. In these days of bling, surely we want a chopper taken out by some, some gold rounds. I mean, if they ever remake Goldfinger in the rebooted Bond franchise, that, sh that scene should be in. Well, I completely agree. Um, though there's an interesting aspect to this scene uh, whereby Tom Newcliffe is supposed to be this expert hunter character and uh, he shoots in order to try and save the pilot who's being attacked by the werewolf. But he contrives to miss both the pilot <laughs> and the werewolf and instead hits this whacking great helicopter, which is sort of 30 feet behind them, which uh, does beg the question as to uh, how good a hunter his character actually is. Well, this is it. He, um, he fires that machine gun off several times, and it's kind of, hmm. I don't think that's his preferred weapon, because the helicopter scene is kind of like, he's just in front of you. Come on, just get him. And coming back to something that you said about the uh, Amicus being a bit of a sort of low-rent outfit and sort of generally sort of keen to sort of cut costs, the helicopter here, you know, it does seem like they're actually sort of burning something that, you know, possibly might actually be a helicopter. It, it seemed... You know, it didn't seem like they just sort of made a cardboard cutout of a helicopter and burning it. Well, that's it. I was watching. I was actually really amazed because normally in, the, in this film's is vintage. If they don't use stock footage, you cut away to a Derek Madding's model shot. Whereas this was quite clearly in the background and always oh, blown up. 
<laughs> so they must have got a say the guts of one from from somewhere and uh you, but you can't see the join you know you never not like you know those dreadful old 70s films where kind of you see a car go off the edge of the cliff then you notice it's a considerably tattier model that actually tumbles down and falls into <laughs> burst into flame and they hadn't scrimped on the uh, petrol either because uh, it's very uh, you know it's a real bonfire that this uh, this helicopter is uh, is going up in they're not, uh, not they haven't just put a few sort of fireworks around it so they can uh, return the helicopter the next day to the makers there's no way no way this was being returned to anybody <laughs> definitely not it was very it was very impressive as i say not what i expect from amicus well, I think that wraps things up for this show. Jim, thanks for joining me on this show to talk about The Beast Must Die. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> if you've enjoyed listening to the show, then go and check out the Exploding Helicopter website. Alternatively, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. We're even, God help us, on Google+. We'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. <laughs> This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.